say it was you, me, Chris, walking into a bar and we struck up a conversation with some friendly strangers in the bar and they were like, how did you three meet? What would you say? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm stumped. Um, we were on a podcast together. There you <laughs> go. Podcast. It's, about, it's about the best I can do. It's, it's, it's a podcast you, yeah. together? What in the world did you talk about on that podcast? Um, I believe it was about cooking, right? <laughs> Uh, uh, slow, long pressure, high pressure, slow cooking, right? Ah, very metaphorical. Mm. Very good. <laughs> Simmering, sometimes over years and decades, you yeah. know? Yeah, I like uh, that. The last time, though, it was me and Amanda and you and your girlfriend. You have one minute remaining. Let's refer to her as my ex-girlfriend. Feeling lost? then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. Back in 2019, Chris and I were making a podcast called The Truth About True Crime. And we dedicated all of season three to one case, the wrongful conviction of Jens Suring for the 1985 double homicide of Derek and Nancy Hasem. Jens was serving two life sentences after getting off death row and had been in prison for 33 years, longer than I'd been alive at the point I began interviewing him. Jens was a 20-year-old German exchange student studying in Virginia when he was convicted alongside his then-girlfriend, Elizabeth Hasem, the daughter of the two victims. By 2019, he'd exhausted all his appeals and he'd been denied parole 14 times in a row. Over the course of many months, we got to know him through the prison phone system. Hello, this is a prepaid debit call from... Jens Zuring. An inmate at Virginia Department of Corrections, Buckingham Correctional. That robotic female voice would interrupt every 19 minutes to let us know we had one minute of phone time remaining. Jens got so used to that voice, he called it his girlfriend a dark and sad joke. Especially since the only real girlfriend he'd ever had was Elizabeth, the woman Jens says was involved in her parents' murder and who Jens had naively tried to save from the electric chair by falsely confessing to the crime, the woman whose testimony helped put Jens away for life. We highly recommend that you check out season three of The Truth About True Crime if you want the full story. It was a brutal knife killing in a small town. The suspects were two young lovers, one of them a foreign exchange student. There was media spectacle, accusations of Satanism and sexual perversion, and immense pressure on local authorities to solve the case immediately. She was the femme fatale. He was the love slave. The parallels to my own case were startling. In a lot of ways, when we met Jens, he was like the version of Amanda who never got out, despite the fact that the evidence against him had been debunked, despite the fact that his supporters included everyone from one of the original detectives to Martin Sheen and John Grisham to German Chancellor Angela Merkel. By the time we finished season three of The Truth About True Crime, we'd become close with Jens. He was a kindred spirit, a prolific writer who'd published half a dozen books in prison, an intellectual who developed a dark sense of humor to deal with his trauma. We hoped our podcast would help move the needle on his case, 
And who knows if it did, but a few months later, in November of 2019, Jens was finally granted parole. Virginia deported him back to Germany in December. It was a bittersweet victory. His name had not been cleared. Virginia acknowledged no fault and would not compensate him for his lost time, nor was he ever allowed back in the U.S. But at least he was free. We were eager to see him in person, and we planned to travel to Germany in early March of 2020. Then the pandemic shut down the entire world, and it wasn't until a few months ago that we were finally able to make the trip. Jens has now been free for over two years, but after 33 years in prison, readjusting to a life in freedom takes time. Jens spent over a year living with the host family, and when we arrived in Germany, he was finally leaving the nest and getting settled in his very own apartment. What were you doing today? I was unpacking furniture. Oh, okay. And attaching legs, which is something I've, everybody does, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least nowadays, it's sort of a rite of passage that you assemble your furniture that you've bought online. But of course, it's new to me and still exciting. I own nothing. I basically arrived in, ha- in Hamburg with like four mm-hmm. suitcases and I've had to buy everything you now. Yeah. And I've had to assemble everything. <laughs> you know, there's so. a cognitive bias called the IKEA bias. <laughs> that is, people tend to value things more when they've built them, when they've uh-huh. constructed them. Even if it's a cheaply constructed IKEA table, if you're yeah. the one who screwed those hex bolts in, right. you have more attachment to it. Yeah. I imagine that's true. You're slowly accumulating things. Yes. And I don't mind that. I think we were talking yesterday about this sort of movement towards minimalism. And you're like, been there, done that. Yeah, really. That's, <laughs> honestly, I've really done that. You're anti-condo. Marie Kondo. Yeah. yeah. Not, not completely, but it's like, let me have a little bit of stuff. Yeah. You know? you know, it doesn't have to be a whole lot, but for my little apartment, let me have a little bit of stuff. <laughs> I think I've earned it. Yeah. So I don't know about you, but when I first got my first apartment after prison, it meant a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it meant a lot to have to, a pair of keys, and it meant a lot to decorate my own space the way that I wanted it with my things without having to ask permission and worry about some guard coming in and trashing my room once a month just to look for contraband. We saw your space yesterday. It's very new. What's it feel like? To some extent, the whole key thing is somewhat significant, but for me, the, the thing that really makes the most difference with apartment is that I'm, I really want it to be beautiful. Mm. That's really important to me. I've been around so much ugliness, literal and metaphorical, but especially literal too. I really want beauty in my life. So um, I spent a good deal of time choosing my furniture. I'm very pleased with the way that, you know, that it actually fits the way I wanted it to. Mm-hmm. And then today uh, the lighting system was installed. That's something you don't think about, right? Mm-hmm. In prison, the only light you have is really harsh, and yeah. everything is cold blue, and it's constantly flickering. That fluorescent, ugh. It's just the ugliest light in the world. And of course, the walls are dirty and painted in some god-awful institutional gray or green, mm-hmm. and then they have some kind of graffiti on top of that. So it's just ugliness on top of ugliness. And the walls of my apartment are freshly painted, and there's warm white light, and it just, it just makes it glow. And then with a really nice furniture there, that's what I really need in my life. I need some beauty. You know, it occurs to me that before prison, did you even 
ever have an apartment? No, I was a kid. This is your first apartment ever. My first apartment ever at 55. That's right. Congratulations. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird. And it's, it's also kind of scary because it's responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, this is what I worked for. You know, I, I worked so hard in prison. Now, for 33 years, I wrote thousands of letters. I'm, I'm, my guess is more than thousands. I wrote books. I wrote every kind of petition there was to write <laughs> and networked like crazy, did everything I had to do. And, and this is what I was working towards. This is what I was working towards. So <laughs> you've spent so much of your life in the operation of getting here. Mm-hmm. Do you feel prepared to be here? Honestly, completely. For me, it's been seamless, really. I wrote six books in prison, and what was the first thing I did? I actually arrived on December 17th, and it was like within the first two weeks of January, I went to Munich and signed my next book contract, right? Amazing. So I was, yeah, I, I just kept right on trucking. It's not been hard. I didn't fall into all the traps one can fall into in prison that restrict your vision and limit you as a person and then make it very difficult when you're released. Describe some of those. Drugs, alcohol, gangs, people who completely give up and just disappear into a television set mm-hmm. or disappear into a bag of chips. As you know, there's some people I in prison who just that. feed themselves to death. Yeah. It's like they're trying to kill themselves with food in prison, and then they just eat and eat and eat and eat. Do you place religion in that list at all? For me, for a long time, religion was very helpful uh, in trying to find some kind of meaning. Finding meaning is so important in dealing with this experience of being in prison for something you didn't do. Mm-hmm. If you're in prison for something you did do, you know, it's pretty obvious what the meaning is, right? You're being punished and it sucks, but it kind of makes sense, even though it's in the United States inevitably too harsh. Right. Yeah. But you can kind of understand what's happening. It's not like, why is this happening to me? Yeah. For us, it was, you know, why is this happening to me? Mm-hmm. And you're looking for explanations. And, you know, for me, as a teenager, I was an existentialist. And then I had a Buddhist phase and was really into that for a while. Um, and then I read a novel called The Last Temptation of Christ mm-hmm. by Nikos Kazantzakis, mm-hmm. who's a Greek socialist. Hmm. And not a Christian, but he wrote a l- book about the life of Christ, portraying him as a human being, right? Mm-hmm. And the Pope put it on the banned book list. And I thought, I got to go read that. <laughs> <laughs> and the really weird effect is that that actually got me interested in Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Which neither the Pope intended, yeah. nor Nikos Kazantzakis, yeah. right? Uh-huh. Uh, so I started reading the Bible and read the Gospel of John. And there's this line in there in chapter 15, verse 3. Uh, greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Mm. And being in the situation I was in, I thought that gave some kind of explanation or meaning to what I had done, and that maybe there was another way of looking at my life that didn't revolve around self-hatred. Jens is referring to his false confession mistakenly thinking that his father's diplomatic status would guarantee that he'd be tried as a youth in Germany with a maximum sentence of 10 years, he told the police that he killed Derek and Nancy Hasem in an effort to save Elizabeth from the electric chair she would surely face in Virginia if she were convicted of the crime. 
At the time, he'd seen it as a noble sacrifice, his own modern-day reprise of Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. But that sense of nobility disappeared after a few years in prison. At that point in my life, I was self-hatred was my thing. But the idea that laying down your life for somebody could be a good thing appealed to me and got me more interested in Christianity. That made sense of my life for a very long time. And then it stopped making sense to me. <laughs> I'm actually curious to dig deeper into this because I, frankly, did not spend as much time in prison as you. So I didn't have ideological phases that made sense to me in this journey. But I totally understand trying on different ideologies in order to make sense of something. And I wonder if you could maybe walk me through what each ideology told you was the why. How did they answer the why? And why did you end up shifting from one to another? Well, I suppose my first attempt to understand my situation was just from a psychological, scientific point of view. At Elizabeth Hayes' sentencing hearing, uh, a psychiatrist, Dr. Robert Showalter, testified that she had a particularly severe case of borderline personality disorder. So I read as much as I could about that and to try to understand what made her the way she was and also psychopathy, you know, Robert Hare and things like that. And then I also read books that try to deal with my own feelings and my own past. And I got really interested in codependency because, of course, my mother was uh, an alcoholic and Elizabeth claimed to be a drug user. I think she was. There's some question whether even that's a lie. So this pattern of finding somebody to take care of who is substance abusing, right? Mm. And then the whole phenomenon of adult children of alcoholics, that was like one attempt to understand what happened to my life. And then I had a long period of a really deep interest in Christianity. And this was first intellectual, because once I started getting interested in Christianity, I, I had sort of in my condescending, arrogant way thought that, you know, Christianity is for dummies. Who could believe this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And then I got interested in, in, in Thomas Aquinas and people like that, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I figured out, hey, this is some just enormously, fantastically intelligent people writing some yeah. really interesting stuff. I got into René Girard. He's a French cultural anthropologist who ended up at Stanford. And it's just fascinating theory about the substitute scapegoating process, where as a culture, cultures are built around finding people on whom anger is unleashed, mm. to phrase it very, very briefly, right? Like a targeted purge. Yes. Mm. And very often it's criminals, right? Wrongdoers, yeah. outsiders, say, you know, Americans in Italy or Germans in Virginia, outsiders who are made the targets because then the society organizes around that. And it's a question of purging the evil from society. And, and, and this fits into the Christian framework because, of course, in a Christian point of view, that's what happened to Christ, right? The whole power structures, the Romans and the, the, the local elite decided, mm. hey, we can maintain power and keep control if we just purge the bad guy, which in this case was Jesus. So this is a way of making sense of my experience for a long time. 
And then that started getting really difficult. Why? Because approaching things rationally doesn't necessarily help you process the emotions, especially when you're still suffering, okay? Looking back is one thing, yeah. but I was continually losing my life day by day yeah. and the emotions weren't being dealt with. So at, there was a stage where an intellectual approach to my situation, either through science or through theology, was no longer working for me. And that's when I started meditating in a Christian framework, but meditation is meditation, no matter what you do. Buddhist meditation, Christian meditation, slightly different words to explain it, but the process is exactly the same. And I did that for nine and a half years, and I got really interested in Christian mystics like John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila and parallels between that and Buddhism, which that was what my first book was about. Mm. And that's a way of, meditation is a way of dealing with your emotions on a, not, not an irrational level, but on a non-rational level. So, um... Yeah, what what level would you call it? Experiential. Oh, I was going to say, yeah. yeah. Experiential, and, and without filters, right? Mm-hmm. The whole thing about meditation is that you try to remove filters and see reality and yourself for what reality and you really are. That's a very difficult process. I mean, real meditation is not relaxing. It takes focus. Yeah, and when people talk about meditation as being very relaxing, then it's like, you're not meditating. <laughs> Sorry. You're, you're doing relaxation, and that's valuable, and it's important to relax. But if you think meditation is relaxing, you're not doing meditation. You're not doing Vipassana anyway. You're not doing the yeah. intense introspection yeah. and scanning. Yeah. Just that's during the pandemic, we started a Vipassana practice. Isn't that cool as shit? It's the best. <laughs> yeah. Every day, not a, not a lot, but just 10 minutes a day, Yeah, spending time doing some Vipassana mindfulness has been transformative. Yeah, That tiny amount has been transformative. I, I did it for two hours a day, three times 40 minutes Yeah, wow. for nine and a half years. And the last year I did it for three hours a day because I had a single cell for a brief period. Well, goodness. And, and then that stopped making sense. How did that stop making sense? My framework for meditation was the Krishna framework. There's this, this German mystic called Meister Eckhart, and he has this wonderful line that says, Gott ist ein lauter nichts, right? Okay. And what he's saying is God is a pure nothing, a pure no thing, right? Right. And one can experience that as a sort of presence during meditation. At least that's the way it felt to me. While I was meditating, I felt I was not alone. And I reached a stage where I lost that, where I felt utterly alone, and I could have worked through that, right? Because you do reach phases like that where you feel bereft. Yeah. That was the time where I was doing three hours a day and it was not being very fruitful, but it's like a test and you work through it. There's this interesting concept in theology that we are all on some level sinners. And that's where Christians, of course, would say that we need God's forgiveness. I forget which theologian said that. The really interesting question is not whether God can forgive us, right? The question is whether we can forgive God Mm. for creating a universe where there's suffering. The problem of evil. Right. Theodicy. That's the interesting question. And after I, I just spent 24 years in prison for something I did not do. And I worked like a madman for 24 years to, to fight this. And then they give me a piece of paper with the seal of the governor on it that says I'm going home. And then seven days later, they take it away again, right? For one week, I was a free man and they took it away again. This was in 2009. Then Virginia Governor Tim Kaine recommended to the DOJ, 
in the final days of his term that Jens be transferred to the German penal system, where he would very likely be paroled in short order. Jens started packing, making plans, his mind flying ahead of his body to a new life in freedom. But a week later, the incoming GOP governor reversed the order. And it turns out that I was willing to accept the idea that a benevolent God would send an innocent man to prison for 24 years. The problem is they kept me for longer than 24 years. This was not okay with me. And so uh, the conclusion I reached was that there might be a God, but he's clearly not interested in me or anything else that's happening down here. So I can stop that now. And then I got really interested in politics. <laughs> <laughs> well, your fate kind of ended up depending on politics in some ways, right? Yeah, I mean, got destroyed by politics for sure. I mean, I've always been interested in politics. Then just about that time, some new evidence developed in my case. So I had other battlefields on which to fight my fight. Less time on the existential why question when you're doing procedural right. get me out of here questions. Correct. At that time, I mean, there were phases where it seemed like we were making progress, but then they were always sort of, you know, getting thrown back. Did you find meaning through the politics? Yeah, sure. You look at how do wrongful convictions happen, especially in the United States, and cultural and political factors play an enormous role, right? Why is it so hard to overturn them? Yes. And why is it almost impossible to reform the system? I know that you're working very hard on reforming the, the system in the United States. And it's like such an uphill struggle because no politician is going to win an election because he fixed the criminal justice system to make wrongful convictions less likely. It's just not a vote getter. We just saw this in Virginia. One lesson you can really look, take from that election, regardless of where you stand politically, is that people care about their own families and their own lives. Mm -hmm. And what really worked in that election was talking about the educational system, what's happening with your kids, right? And you're a mother now, you know. I get it. You care a heck of a lot about what happens to Eureka, and stopping wrongful convictions is just way down on the list, way, way down on the list. Unless you think it can happen to your kid. Yeah, but try to get people to understand that. You know, it's always somebody else's problem. The time horizon is also really important. Anyone who lives on a four-year cycle of office tenure yeah. can only succeed by putting forward things that will show results within four years. And something like reforming the criminal justice system to stop wrongful convictions has like a 20-year payoff. Yeah. And of course, you know, that's just preventing future wrongful convictions. Yeah. Statistically, we know there's at least 100,000 wrongfully convicted people in prison in America today, right? We don't know who they are. Mm -hmm. And finding out who they are and then admitting that and then actually trying to fix that, this would cost so much money, right? Let's say everybody who's been in prison is going to get, what, like 500000 on average. And you're talking about billions of dollars. Yeah. 
where's this money going to come from? And how do you explain that to voters? Now that you're out, does your mind go towards that political place as much? No, because you are in the United States. You are actually in a position to do something. But I'm thousands of miles away and I can't travel back. I can't visit. If I could, at least I could go to conferences and I could speak about it, which I would like to do. But I'm not able to do any of those things. Has the why answer shifted since you've been out? Why did this happen to me? And what does it mean? I feel I have a grip on that. And for me, the really big key has been to keep in the forefront of my own mind that nobody did this to me, right? I did this to myself. And that's a huge difference to you. Both of us gave false confessions, but you were physically assaulted. Although they did, they never acknowledged that part, no, no. but you were physically assaulted. They charged her with slander for even saying that. Yeah. Okay. So you can't say it, but let me say it for you. <laughs> but you were physically assaulted to make you falsely confess, right? Mm-hmm. You were hit. Mm-hmm. And nobody did that to me. I did this voluntarily. I had a plan. And that makes my false confession different from a lot of false confessions. And I hated myself for this for a long time. How could I be so stupid? And it wasn't until 2016 that a British police officer who looked at my case, Dr. Andrew Griffiths, right? We talked to him for the last podcast. You did. That's right. And he introduced me to this book by a Scandinavian researcher working at a British university. He had wrote a big tome on interrogation, and he discovered or uh, pointed out that among teenagers, the leading reason for a false confession is to try to protect somebody else. And for me, this was such an emotional experience because for the first time, I didn't feel like such a freak because most false confessions, to me, I thought were like yours. And that's probably the case you know, among older people, but amongst teenagers, I was actually the normal case. I think it's 50% of false confessions amongst teenagers are to protect somebody else. So I get to be boring. That's a big accomplishment for me. (laughs) (laughs) The way you're talking about this is remarkably similar to how Amanda talks about her false confession for all the differences you're pointing out. I mean, the self-blame issue is, is real. Even though the the cops hit me. And even though they yelled at me, and even though they threatened me, I still felt like ultimately I was the one who signed the statements that they gave me to sign. Well, and like the first thing you said, the minute you left that interrogation room was, I'm sorry. Yeah. Right. And she blamed herself for a thousand reasons. Oh, my Italian wasn't good enough. They didn't misunderstood me because I failed to communicate. And that's why this whole thing went awry. But it wasn't until she saw some research on false confessions from Saul Casson that you had that same revelation, right? Oh, I'm not special. This happens to a bunch of people. I'm boring. I didn't know that you had this. Discovering that you're not alone mm-hmm. and that this has happened to other people and not feeling like a freak anymore, right? So here's a question. You got shipped back all the way here to Germany. It's not like you meet a wrongfully convicted person every day when you go to the grocery store. Do you feel lonely? Sure. That's why doing that podcast with you in prison was such an amazing experience for me. Because like, I think like the only person, you know, who can really understand me is you. (laughs) Really. But that's just the way life works out. And, um, and of course, don't misunderstand this, but for you, it was four years. And for me, it was you know, seven times as much or something, yeah. uh, eight times as much. And you have Eureka. And 
I might have lost that chance. It ended for you soon enough to where you have that opportunity. And, and I might have just lost that. I'm not sure, right? Inevitably, somebody's going to tell me, but Mick Jagger had babies at <laughs> 76, right? It's like true, and I have the same lips, but I am otherwise <laughs> not Mick Jagger, right? It's a real thing. And just because I'm out of prison doesn't mean the loss has ended. Yeah. And in some ways, being out now, become more aware of some things that I was able to push away from myself in prison. So yeah. me showing up here with my baby was just like the most callous <laughs> possible thing that I could do. <laughs> Basically, you're a terrible person. <laughs> and, um, no, it's it, look, the, it, it is definitely bittersweet. Mm. I'm so happy for you, right? I'm so happy for you. And she's a spectacular little person. I mean, she's so happy. <laughs> That's not normal. What's wrong with your baby? <laughs> It's amazing. But then I think, is it too late for me? And, and uh, it may well be. I don't have a pardon. And I was not declared innocent like you. And what would that do to that child to grow up with a father who has not been officially declared innocent? There's always going to be bozos who are going to say whatever they say. There's bozos who say stuff about you. That's not what I mean. I mean, just simply an acknowledgement from somebody in authority to say, hey, it's not true. Hmm. And my child would not have that as things stand now. And do I want to do that to a little person? Yeah, that's an interesting question because you're not the only wrongfully convicted person who um, either wants kids or has kids. The vast majority of them had kids and they were very young and then they were put into prison. And so these kids grew up their entire life with their parent absent and with their whole sort of lives wrapped around the fight for their parents' innocence. And I've met quite a few of those kids and they're great. They turn into really thoughtful adults. But you're right. That is a question that I asked myself. Those people didn't know that they were about to be wrongly convicted. I was already, you have been already. What does that mean? to bring someone into that reality. Right. At the same time though, I wondered, is it gonna be bad to be Amanda Knox's kid? But it's, one of the things it's that- It's gonna be great. <laughs> it's gonna be great. I mean, but also like, I keep thinking, there's something that I learned from the experience that I can pass on to her that's gonna be valuable, that's gonna protect her from the world. Cause she's just gonna know a little bit more than I did. Not just valuable, rare. Mm. Like the valuable thing that you have to offer Eureka, it's a perspective that not a lot of people have. And that weighs, I think, far more heavy on the scales than the, how do I explain the lack of an official statement of innocence? I mean, we, we are all social creatures. You know, I do have a lot of friends in Germany, okay? And uh, new, new friends and old friends. And these are all thoughtful and intelligent people who understand what happened but that's their that's their choice and they have the education and the maturity right to deal with that but you're talking about a child right who does not have the maturity and the intellectual wherewithal to understand the subtleties of the american criminal justice system in the 1980s and 90s right and Eureka doesn't have to deal with that because there is an official statement with you, right? 
but there is no official statement with me. Even the official statement, there's plenty of people. OJ Simpson has the official statement of being acquitted, right? But everyone knows he's guilty. Amanda faces that sort of challenge. Oh, sure. Lots of people get acquitted. You just like you and OJ. Whoever were to compare your situation to OJ Simpson (laughs) is obviously mentally deranged and has some kind of handicap that perhaps a psychiatrist can help him or her with. It really does concern me what my child would experience growing up. Yeah, it really does worry me. Something that I'm really interested in now is, is this idea of failure and acknowledging failure and processing failure and moving on from failure. Hmm. One of the big differences between the United States and Germany is in the United States, you're really not successful until you've had a couple of bankruptcies. <laughs> when you're on your third or fourth startup, right, then people take you seriously. But in Germany, you can't fail. That makes people very risk averse because there's a stigma attached to failure in this country. She doesn't like thinking about failure. Are you trying to get her another bottle? Yes, I am. This is our life now. Nothing can proceed as planned without something like this. This is when we break for an ad in the podcast. That's about as cranky as she ever gets. And that was like super sweet. (laughs) And now she's super happy. She'll look at her. She's absolutely, yeah, she's in the zone now. God, she's sweet. (laughs) All right. You were talking about failure. Yeah. In Germany, unlike the United States, there's a stigma attached to failure. And that makes the people risk averse. And being risk averse diminishes lives, right? Because you stay in a job you hate and you stay in a relationship that you hate. Because you can't admit failure, right? Sure. And that has cultural and e- even economic consequences. Some cost fallacy and all that, yeah. Exactly, exactly, right? And, you know, SAP and Microsoft are two software companies that were started in roughly the same time. Similar circumstances, you know, in the 1970s. And one of them is like 10 times the size of the other. And that's because there's a willingness to take risks in the United States because failure is not stigmatized as much. So how does that relate to you? When I was a teenager, right, I think most of my teachers would have said that I was the most likely to succeed. I I won that scholarship um, to the University of Virginia, which was not just for sort of intellectual abilities, but for leadership potential and stuff like that. And I won all kinds of prizes in high school. And I remember my parents' friends seriously discussing in my presence, you know, whether it would be better for me to be a U.S. Secretary of State or the German foreign minister. But they were like serious about this. Did you want that for yourself then? No, no. I wanted to study psychology. But the point is people had very, very high expectations of me. And these were not crazy people. These were educated uh, professionals and not just my teachers, but my, my parents' friends. And I disappointed those expectations spectacularly because you can't really get much further away from being secretary of state or foreign minister than being a convicted double murderer. So a as spectacular failure. Go, failure. <laughs> it is a spectacular failure, right? And then I 
fight like a demented person for 33 years for two things, freedom and justice. And I only get one of the two, right? I get freedom, but I do not get justice. And that can be seen as a kind of failure, hmm. right? You put that on yourself? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. So who owns that failure? I think no individual owns that. Um, I think the governor of Virginia was very courageous to let me go. I have some thoughts on how to deal with failure, and I have some thoughts on the relationship between risk and freedom. There were stages in my time in prison where people advised me, oh, for God's sake, you know, just, just tell them you did it, mm. and they might give you parole. And a safe thing to do for you is just to give them whatever they want and stay out of the limelight, that sounds like failure to me. It, it is. And I, I thought of it like that, right? Because it's your honor and your integrity. And, and it's the truth. The truth. Yeah. The thing that this, at my trial where the judge asks me, you know, do you have anything left to say right before he sentences me? And I say, I'm innocent. That's a clip they use over and over and over again in shows about my case. And to me, there was never a question that I would not say that. And there was never a question that I would stop saying that. And my view was always to keep speaking the truth because hiding from it, that would be a failure. And I don't think for a minute I would have had even the partial success that I had of being freed if I'd played it safe. The framing of what failure is, is really important. Sure. When I look back at my own life, my failures are very different degrees than the magnitudinous ones that you're talking about. But there's plenty of personal things that from an objective place, I could say, oh, well, I tried to do X and I didn't succeed at that. And I pivoted to a new thing. And you know, I tried to, you know, sell a novel, you know, whatever. I wrote one book, there's no way about the second one, et cetera. But I look at it through a regret framework, which is I don't really regret anything. I feel like in the moment I've made the choices that I've made. I think they were the right choices in the moment. Maybe I would do something different, but that's not how time works. And yeah. now I'm in a different place and I continue to make choices and do the best I can. And I don't regret anything. Yeah. If I don't regret anything, then I don't think I've really failed. Yeah. And so I wonder like that ultimate sacrifice moment, the one that totally shifted your life. Do you I stand by that? that. No, I stand, stand by, by that. I, I mean, I, I, I regret how I did it, um, but I do not regret the desire to save somebody's life. If you look at the actual case evidence, then my giving that false confession probably uh, was the worst thing I could have done for, for everybody involved because there was actually no evidence against either one of us. And if I had just shut the heck up and not tried to play the hero, that was my biggest mistake that I wanted to be the hero. That was the central character fault. I told myself I wanted to save a life, and that's true, but I really wanted to be the hero, mm. the knight in shining armor. And that's a whole lot less noble. <laughs> yeah. And that desire was what made me give that false confession. And if I had not done that, there was no evidence against her or me, and they probably could not have charged either one of us mm. at all. Right. Mm. Right? So that's why I'm not a hero. I really am the ultimate putz. Amanda often struggles with this sense that she hasn't accomplished anything. And I often have to remind her that the hole they threw you into 
was so deep that to even climb back up yeah. to ground level absolutely is a huge achievement yeah it is and it is i don't know if that makes her a hero but it it's certainly a great achievement it is certainly a great achievement and you have an achievement of that nature are you proud of that Senator, I refuse to answer that question on the grounds that it may incriminate me. One of the things that I kind of regret is nobody can really understand how hard the thing that I did was mm. and how unbelievably dangerous it was in so many different ways. I spent three years under the direct threat of the death penalty. And people, that's just a part of the story that people just forget because it's so long ago. I was so close to getting executed. And then the 1990s, it was so dangerous in prison back then. And one of the first nights in real prison, I watched a guy get raped and I very nearly got raped myself. And the stuff I had to do for that not to happen to me. And then just the time involved. That's the one place where we part ways. I mean, it was 33 years. And except for three months in the summer of 2009, I didn't give up. And so I kind of regret that nobody can understand that. I'm really alone with that. And I, I wish there was some way I could make people understand hmm. what that was like. I've had these feelings come up, not in any kind of traumatic way. Lately, I've been f remembering or feeling just how bad it was. And it was just mm. like even worse than I could let myself feel at the time. Mm. And it was just so bad. Mm. It was so horrible. And the things I saw and the things I experienced, it was so bad. And it was so long. Mm. And, and I got through it. I can't believe it. It just seems impossible, but clearly it, it is possible because I'm sitting here with you, right? So I'm kind of incoherent about it, which is unusual for me because normally I can talk real good. No, I get it. Honestly, just, I, again, like we part ways in how much time it is, but like when I look back, I'm like, holy shit, that sucked so, so bad. bad. Oh my God. Yeah. It's just like, <laughs> It's just like, unbelievable. That was the worst thing ever. It's just, it's just unbelievable how much it sucks, right? Yeah. It's just unbelievable about it. Yeah. It's just so bad. And then you just sort of like accepted it because you kind of have to because you're just there. Yeah. You don't get used to it, but it's like you tolerate it. And it's almost embarrassing how much shit you can tolerate. Yeah. You know? I mean, look, it's it's been kind of weird getting advice from you these last couple of years dealing with the trolls and all the other things that you've helped me understand and cope with. You've been a big sister to me, which is like weird, but there you <laughs> go, you know? It's, uh, happy to. I'm you'll happy probably you. end up being the godmother of my children, aren't Aww. you? So, you know. I'm not a godmother to anyone. That sounds fun. Yeah, we'll I have to I see. I hope I get to be a fairy godmother, though. I'm only going to show up in fairy outfits. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank you for that, too. I really do. Mm. Because again, who's the one person who can give me advice really, you know, on the whole darn planet? <laughs> you know, it's you, right? There could have been zero people. Right? Yeah. Yeah. What's like, your point? Uh, we've also been going down the stoic uh, rabbit hole lately. And uh, he's doing you know, negative I mean, visualization. Yeah, just the, yeah, there's that one person, but it didn't have to be that way.
I've, I've read that stuff in prison, and you know, I had that phase too. I, I forgot <laughs> to mention. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the, the Stokes kind of—they're okay. <laughs> <laughs> really interesting thing about Marcus Aurelius, which not, not not that many people know, is that there was like a huge pandemic going on mm. while he was doing all of this. Uh, did you know that? No, I did not know that. Lots and lots of people were dying while he was fighting this war. It was like end times. Right, 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 right. So the, the reason I'm kind of down on the Stoics is because, of course, you know, they have this whole thing that every man has, is the, the freedom to take his own life and all that stuff. Right. And my, I, I did that like when I was a teenager, right? Mm. You know, under threat of the death penalty, I had that, you know, rope that I had under my bed and yeah. stuff. Right. We talked about that. I never know how seriously to take that stuff. Again, you know, the same thing kind of applies to the Aurelius, right? Talking about bearing up under suffering, but you're the Roman emperor and how bad is it really, right? That's more fair. He had some emperor privilege. Yeah, you know. <laughs> well, but I mean, you know, what's his name? Uh, Epictetus, okay? You know, he was a slave, hmm. tough. He got freed, right? Mm -hmm. He caught a huge break. I hear you. <laughs> it could have been a whole lot worse. When did you feel the most lost? Uh, the most lost was in the summer of 2009, when there was about a three-month period where I had nothing left to fight with. For a three-month period, I did not know how to fight anymore because there were no battlefields left on mm. which to carry out the fight. Mm. And that ended in September 2009, when the DNA test results came in the mail. Yeah. I was sitting in my cell in B4 pod in Buckingham Correctional Center, and I got the DNA test results. And, and then I knew I had something to fight with again. Good new ammo. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. And there was just this three-month period yeah. where I, I had no ammo left. Do you still feel lost in some capacity? Oh, nope. Um, sorry. Um, yeah? <laughs> feel pretty good about everything. I'm one of the very, very rare guys. I can honestly say that the worst is behind me. Hmm. Right. High five, dude. <laughs> <laughs> the worst might be behind Jens, but that doesn't mean his struggle or his story is over. After four years in prison, it took me at least that long to regain solid footing. And I'm still rebuilding, still making up for lost time, still struggling to make sense of what happened. One day, hopefully, Jens will get his name cleared and be allowed to re-enter the United States, where a thriving community of exonerees awaits him. But however the coming years play out, Jens seems well on his way to creating a life filled with beauty and acceptance and purpose. Jens may feel like a putz for the decisions that led him here, but maybe that's just the feeling of hard-earned wisdom. So come on, all you putzes, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. And if you think this podcast has been wrongfully convicted by those who left us a one-star review, please help balance the scales. This episode was written, edited, and sound designed by us, with additional editing and sound design by Josh Thane, and theme music by Josh Budo Karp. Thank you, Jens. I really love seeing you hold the baby. <laughs> it's really special. Yeah. Yeah. She's looking at you. Yeah. She's looking at you. It's mom with the boobs. Mom with the boobs. <laughs> <laughs>